Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Okay, our lovers, today we have one of our 2021 Not Real Art Grant winners. He is the last of the six interviews that uh, we have done this year with our grant winners. And I love talking to Albert Willis, a.k.a. Cleophus. I was so grateful to see that he won our grant out of 864 applicants, he was one of the winners, one of the six winners. And you might recall that Albert was on the podcast a couple of years ago when he came to our attention because of his very unique story. Albert is an incredibly talented artist who is getting up in years and his life experience is so rich and so robust. And like a lot of artists, you know, he's had great highs and he's had great lows. And hopefully winning our grant was one of those great highs for him. I know it was for us because Albert represents exactly the kind of artist and human being that we want to win our grant here at Not Real Art. But Albert is born and raised Angelino and he's his resume is incredible, having studied and practiced art at a very high level. At one point, he was even a music producer producing albums for Motown. So this guy's story is incredible and he's such a sweetheart of a guy. And again, so thrilled to have him as one of our six grant winners here in 2021. So without further ado, let's get into this interview and hear from the one and only Albert Willis, AKA Cleophus. Albert Willis. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Glad to be back again. Oh, it's the second time around, right? I mean, welcome yes, it back. Is. Welcome back. It's such a a treat uh, and a gift to have you back, my friend. But we're under we're under we're back under different circumstances because last time you were on the show because you have such an amazing life story. This time you're back on the show because you are now one of our 2021 grant winners. Yes, and I'm a surprise winner. <laughs> well, that. you're a deserving winner. <laughs> Thank you. Fantastic. So how did you, uh, how, what, what went through your mind that day when you got the news? I, would, I was totally surprised, to be quite honest with you. 
just from the title, Not Real Art, seems to not fit me. You know what I'm trying to say? Because you look at my art and you say, well, that's real art. I know what that is. An artist did that. But the reason why I think I was surprised and why I should be a recipient or at least considered and why I entered the contest is for the simple fact that I feel discriminated against because of the fact of my art. So much of the art today is about what's new, pushing the limits, having something else to say rather than how well you say it. Mm. And so, I mean, I think you should be able to paint a realistic flower the way somebody else did. You don't have to try to make it into something else if that's what you want to do just by bringing your bit to it. And so and I was surprised in the sense that I won and I entered just for the fact to see if I would win and to actually gain exposure. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the name Not Real Art and, and sort of how it resonates. And I asked this to many artists. What does that phrase mean to you, Not Real Art? What does Not Real Art mean to you? Well, it, it means an inclusive expression of artistic talents, whether it be jewelry or whatever. You know, jewelry, for example, is one of the most creative things I see and recognize, which also has craftsmanship. Yep. And it also has a utilitarian value yep. Yep. as well. It's not just somebody saying, I just did this because I want to do it. That's what I feel. Right. And then you always hear when you see somebody talk about fine art, says, well, bring me something great when you got something to say. Well, everybody's got something to say. So it's all about how you say it. Mm. And so I think not real art just allows people to be able to express themselves, but I still think that that art should be measured. Yes. It's still a competition. It's just like an actor goes to get a job and he gets turned down a lot, you know? Yep. Until it happens. So, I mean, so when I, I, I recognize the fact that people have great expressions and great expectations on what they do, and they all have a right to do it. We all did it in kindergarten, by the way. And if you really wanted to express just emotions, you could just go to a mental ward and have people just give them some paint <laughs> and, a, and a canvas. And yes. gee, yes. you really get a lot of expression, yeah. a lot of emotion of what they got to say. So I would like to just see art be more about the art than the artist. And it just seems that it has to be the way it is. But it would be great if you could just walk in and see a piece and say, I see this and I feel this about this. And I don't know who did it. Right. Right. Rather than so-and-so did this. And I want to buy this because I want a piece of him. Right. <laughs> you know, even though that has merit. Well, it, it's interesting, right? Because, I mean, part of what you're getting at is this idea that, well, there's a certain number of people out there in the art world that would argue that, you know, if, if, if an artwork has 
uh, utility or if it has realism uh, attached to it on some level that the more realism, the more utility, the less credible, exactly. credible or less legitimate. You're and right. that's a bunch of you bullshit. You know the dichotomy of yeah. uh, 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 Picasso and uh, say Norman Rockwell. That's right. That's right. One's commercial, one's real art. And right. Except by today, Rockwell's finally got his noted value. Yes, yes. But you know, if you listen to the people and not the critics, that's right. You get a different story because Norman Rockwell was front page news for a week. Yep. Picasso was only a front page news for one day. <laughs> well, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'd have to believe that. Picasso, you know, and I, I'm not exactly. Although they were Picasso was a revolutionary. A, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, don't get me wrong. I mean, I a lot of the shadow art and stuff I do today is based a lot, a lot off of him. Matter of fact, the pieces I'm doing today are based on a similar philosophy that Jackson Pollock did. And, you know, Jackson Pollock was the guy that did these yep. squiggle paint all over the whole canvas. Yep, yep. But the idea behind all of that, is not the squiggles and the paint and everything. It's just a totality of every inch of the surface having a value. Everywhere you look, there was something to look at. Right. That was part of the whole. Mm. And just as, important, just as important. Yep. So now, when you incorporate uh, composition, color, and all of that to that, which is what I try to do, I try to always make the craft first it's almost like a good song you know first you got the lyrics then you got a great melody then you got a great orchestration then you got a great performance and the marriage of all of those things makes something memorable and lasting and i think art should do that and 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 even while it's doing that it's still pushing the envelope but I just figure I'm a dinosaur, like I've said this before. <laughs> little I'm just there to keep a balance to it all, to remind people just to hold back a little bit. Mm. Let them push, and you sort of hold back. Right. And keep the quality of art, art. Because when you think of dance, the visual art is, a, is, is, is something that's for everybody, but then everybody's got uh, a fingerprint, you know, and it's unique to them. So mm -hmm. everybody's got a unique story, but it's just almost like everybody can sing the Star Spangled Banner, but they don't make everybody a singer. That's right. So we always recognize the exceptional, but recognize this, the craft as well. And the art is a craft. And going back to something I said earlier, I've never really considered myself an artist, even when I went back to art school. You, I never seemed to belong because I was never there for the art, for the sake of art. I was there for the craft of art. So I've always considered myself sort of an artisan or somebody that's right on the fringe, sort of blurred. Mm. I do artistic things, but I don't, I'm not part of the artistic world. I think a lot of artists would say that. <laughs> I think there's think a so? lot of artists out there that feel 
Like, you know, they're making art, they're, they're artists, they're doing their thing, or maybe they feel like they're not an artist, but they're making art, but they are absolutely standing on the outside of the so-called art world. And they well, feel- not only that, you also get caught up in the fact that you have to make a living. Yes. And so I've seen, I've seen great art on greeting cards, on illustration for book or paperback covers. Mm. Even today, I look at now and I look at movie illustrations that you might see on Netflix or different things. And I'll notice they keep changing their images. Mm-hmm. There are artists there that are sitting there changing, taking scenes from those things to make them feel new. Yeah. And to give them new vitality in life. And those are real artists. I mean, to be quite honest with you, I've been a starving artist for the last uh, maybe 20 years, but very lucrative before then. Mm-hmm. But only doing commercial stuff. Right. You know? And so the artist is probably one of the biggest and the largest and most lucrative fields in the world. But not in the fine art world. Right. The creative industries, which this is according to the accounting firm um, Booz Allen and uh, in the United Nations, they did a big study recently and across 11 verticals, including the visual arts, the performing arts, architecture, design, movies, television. Oh, yes. It's a $2 trillion segment of the global economy. The creative industries oh, yes. are two. Tra- now, you mentioned the art world, so-called art world, and, and, the, and being a starving artist. I mean, the reality is, in my humble opinion, is that what we really have in the conventional art world is one business model designed to serve the stakeholders, not to serve the art. And the artist is a stakeholder, but really it fails 99.9% of the artists. You know, but more so here in the United States than in Europe. Okay, let's talk about that. So how is it different in Europe, Albert? I think history, yeah, their appreciation for it. You know, the founding of America was always to duplicate a life that was that they left in Europe. Right. Or somewhere else. Yeah, right. And so even the early portraits you see of all our patriots and everything, mm-hmm. they didn't dress that way. They were painted that way. Mm. So it was really to perpetuate an illusion that never existed. Mm. But we do have real art here in this country. I mean, jazz, for example. Yes, yes. Is is, is one of our real art forms. We do real art. We lead the world. World copies us and everything we do. Yes, from motion pictures on, you know. But you mentioned you mentioned jazz uh, specifically. It's interesting. I have a friend who's a professional jazz pianist from Chicago, and he has always talked about how living in America, live working in Chicago, is a struggle, struggle, struggle. He goes to Europe, and he exactly. is a rock star. They pay, they they spoil, they you know, like they treat him so well. And then he comes back here and he's a second-class citizen. Well, that happens with Muddy Waters and the Blues, you know, like they brought those guys back to life. You know, the one thing about being progressive, I said this to a friend of mine. It's the first time I'm going to say this. you got to realize this is my opinion as I look at things. Being a black man, we, we sort of lead the world. I listen to the news. I listen to people's language. And they seem to copy everything that we do. It seems like we perpetuate what is America, and that is a profound thing. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, we, Western culture, and specifically American culture, has been the aspiration of so many 
countries around the world for good, bad, and and worse, whether it's our fast food brands or our Levi's or the Harley Davidson or our art or our music. And, you know, but one has My to wonder, right? This. We were talking about Ray Charles with a friend of mine mm -hmm. and different people like that. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, Ray Charles, you know, here is a big star, but more a big star for white people than black people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he said, well, why is that? I says, well, I think, and this has to do with art too, like pushing the envelope. Mm -hmm. I say, black people seem to not want to be or want to be separate from the world to have recognition from the world. So they strive to change their language, their talk, their music, everything. They keep pushing and changing. Every generation is a change. And by the time Ray Charles was selling all his records, black people were doing something else with their music. Mm. Whereas Ray Charles was living through the eyes of white people and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And the same with the blues singers and stuff like that. You go to a blues concert, you're not going to see any black people. There are not many. Mm -hmm. You know, when it's part of our heritage. Yeah. Which is untrue, like in gospel, you know, my my I, my upbringing and starting music in the gospel sure. field. And gospel had all of those elements, and 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 of course, you know about Aretha Franklin bringing a lot of those elements to uh, uh, secular music, which she did. Mm -hmm. And but it goes on and on, and and it brought about the fact that I was having a conversation with my son, who's a music producer, mm -hmm. and an artist too, just like me. Mm -hmm. Uh, priorities. His is more more music than mine is more art. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I sort of use music, hoping I would make a lot of money so that I could do my art. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, because you produced music for a while too, didn't you? Work with Ray Charles? Yeah, not not really with him, but uh, I do have an experience with Ray Charles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I worked for his company, mm -hmm. which was ABC Records, which was my first co-production. I was just a songwriter trying to. Mm -hmm sell my songs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, lying about the fact that I could arrange and all of that stuff. <laughs> and so I got called on it and I got a job with his company as a co-producer on my first record there. And But he's an amazing man. One story about Ray is I saw him one time He, while I was a guest at one of his uh, recordings. He was had his band there, his jazz band, you know, full life thing. And he's behind the council and then somebody hits a chord and it's the wrong note or something. And he's trying to tell him what he wants. And he just walks out the studio. This is a blind man. Walks out the studio, walks over to the grand piano. Dang, that's what I want. And I said, damn, how the hell did he do that? And to couple that with another time I'm at the studio and I'm there doing my stuff. And Ray walks into the to the booth, and I'm working on stuff with the the musician that we that I was producing. And he's had his arm in a cast. Now to get to his studio, you know, he had a stairway going up. And I said, "Oh, what happened to your arm? That you have?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "You know what? 
you're about the hundredth person that asked me that. I don't really want to hear that anymore mm. because he had failed. Sure, sure, right, you know? right, right. Because he figured he could do anything that anybody could see could do. Right. So right. he played chess that way. He just imagine. But it turns out, guess what? Turn, but it but it turns out people who can see fall and break their arm too. So you know what I mean? Well, I know, I know. He's being hard on himself. <laughs> I know. But it's just amazing how we use our senses. Yes. And yes. we lie on our senses uh, sometimes too much, and we overshadow the ones that uh, 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 would be more beneficial to us in certain circumstances. Well, spe- speaking of senses, you know, one, you know, I've talked to a lot of artists, as you know, over the years, and. I've sometimes asked, you know, about their experience going to art school. And I've asked many artists, you know, what what did art school teach you? And many times I've heard very quickly artists, you know, answer back, art school taught me how to see, how to see. Well, that is the main thing that art should teach anybody. When I instruct, that's what I do to see. By the way, you notice all the thing about all these big oversized images and stuff? Well, back in the day, nobody did that. I know you have time. But I would do, I said, if you do an eye, a hundred times the size of an eye, you won't need an anatomy lesson. <laughs> right, right. Because you see every last where it came from and everything. Yeah, yeah. It's like looking that close. Right, right. But you know, the biggest thing that art taught me, or the, or the thing that was most beneficial to me, mm-hmm. was this class that I hated. It was called Materials and Methods. Okay. You hated it. I hated that class. I could see, no, I went there to learn how to to do stuff like Raphael and, and Rembrandt and everything. And here's this guy, got plaster and all kind of crazy shit, and he's trying to tell us how this could be art. I said, this ain't art. This is my dad does this in construction. What is this? <laughs> you know. But you know the funny ironic thing about all of that stuff mm. is later on, those are all the things that I used to develop all the medias I did. Was the materials and the methods. Yeah. Yeah. It's fundamental. So I walk in at a store and I see cork or whatever. And my thought is, and you know, Picasso did stuff with newsprint material combined with collage and sketch and paint. They're all they're all materials and methods. Thanks yeah. to you. Well but and then some artists, I mean every artist is so different, right? And 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 what I so appreciate about your art is that you you clearly think three dimensionally. The mathematics in your art, the geometry in your art, you know, the calculus in your art, like it is it is awe inspiring. How did how did that come to life for you? Well, I was working at uh, Art Master Studios, and we were asked, or at least a trend that was being set, you know, was for more dimensional type of works. So I d- ended up looking at these dimension in another way, mm-hmm. and actually, I looked at some uh, templates for. Well, you know, you look at coins and stuff and you see, but I always knew that stuff was there, but I just never looked at it. And I just finally started looking at it and this light and this shadow thing just caught a hold of me. Then I started looking at architecture and I saw all the design and shape and the geometry and the stuff and, and how shadow and everything affected that. And that's what led me on to do it. 
but geometry is mathematics, which also drew me to music. I mean, most people would do the music and they want to do the feeling of the music. I feel it. Me, I looked at the music and I said, gee, and converted back into note form. I'm seeing the mathematics of it and saying, all those little notes represent everything you did, no matter how you slurred it, how you, whatever you did, whatever volume it was, everything there is being notated some kind of way. So it's, I guess it's a control issue. Probably why I like realism more than I like abstractionism. Although I do think abstraction is exciting. I mean, I think color is exciting. But I work mostly in monochromatic or black and white because I think it's just more mysterious. I think it's, I think it's more of a quality of you looking at somebody in black and white and imagining what color their eyes are yeah, that actually, because then you're painting your own picture. Yeah. You're involved right. in the interpretation of what you see. Right. So you're also creating the story behind what you said. Right. Yeah, I've always enjoyed the mystery of black and white. You know, I always felt like color just gave too much away. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like, I love color, don't get me wrong, but black and white. And is it a also be becomes so common. Yeah. And my whole thing was always trying not to be with the, wherever the herd was going. Yep. It's almost like finding a lane to be in. Well, okay, so, but you mentioned earlier, you talked about how art is a competition in some ways. Yeah, but you've also, because of your experience, and, you know, to the to the extent that it is a competition, it does get to differentiation. It does get to doing something unique, something new, something fresh, something that other people aren't doing. But because of your journey as an artist, as a, as a producer, you know, a, a life well lived through the, through the arts, I mean, you also have realized that it's a business, right? Like the art is a business. And, and, and so you think about markets and what, what's in demand or what isn't in demand. And, oh, and how can it be beneficial to somebody? Yeah. Yes, of course. You know, everybody, everybody's an artist in a sense. You know, you decorate your house, you decide where to put that couch and everything. So every home is a living piece of art. And most homes you walk into are well designed yep. for that person. Yep. They represent right. that person, that thing. And so art is the same way. I just feel like, uh, well, it just has to be. Yes. Well, you know, your shadow art. I mean, this is this is the, the, the phrase you use to describe your artwork. This is the, you know, the culmination of decades of arts practice and finding your voice as an artist, finding your, your aesthetic, if you will. Explain to me, well, explain to our listeners, really, because I'm sitting here right, you know, surrounded by amazing works of your shadow art. Explain to our listeners how you define shadow art. Well, it's almost like uh, it's almost like living in the fourth dimension in a way. You know, everything that we see is based on light, and of course, in a simpler form, light produces a shadow. And uh, and so we can interpret that as the art of the shadow. So when I first did the shadow art, I had no images. I did maybe geometric shapes. And they were all like, say, maybe white. 
or certainly monochromatic. They could have been even black. But I noticed that every time, like a sundial, it moves. It keeps moving. And then more than that, I noticed when you move, you become an animator to whatever is happening there. So later I started incorporating images with that to create points of interest that would be forever living, depending on where you put it, what light hit it, whether it was natural light through the window or a lamp or even a colored light that's bounding and reflecting off of it. And, and in a way, becoming a living piece of art. Then I thought I would incorporate words with that. And you would look at the words and you look at the image and it create a greater story. And also a conversation piece. When somebody else looks at the same piece you're looking at, they see something different and you say, oh, I didn't recognize that before. Mm. And the reason for all of this is I had this concept that I watch people go to a gallery and they walk by a piece and they seldom broke stride. And if they saw something interesting, they stop and they pause for a minute and maybe they come back. I say, boy, I said, what if I could just make them stop? As they got closer, I said, what is that? Then they got closer and they saw something else. And then what if it was words there they could read? Getting back to the Jackson Pollock thing, every little inch of the canvas or the sculpture in this case had something to say. Well, I have a practical question for you as well, because, and this gets to the business aspect to it. You know, we were talking about one of the pieces in your studio that you're working on right now, which, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, is a bit of a self-portrait, although it's way more than a self-portrait. The pieces that you create are so complex and so robust and so dynamic and dimensional, multidimensional, and the, the amount of time and energy put into to them are is countless. I mean, you can't track how many hours you have in these pieces, in, in part because you're working on four or five pieces at any one time as well. How do you go about pricing your art? If you don't know how many hours you have in a piece, how the hell do you figure out what to charge for it? Well, actually, I did come up with a formula. Let's hear it. In hindsight. Good. Well, because and I, this is important because I think a lot of artists struggle with this. Well, what I did was I just came up with different pieces. A lot of my pieces are not all identically done. They're almost like statements of showing somebody a potential. Mm. In other words, this medium I call shadow art, if you use it this way, if you use it another way, if you use it another way. Because uh, one of the things that I didn't mention about shadow art is the fact that you could use it to create action, sort of like a boxer's punch, mm -hmm. like you see in a cartoon. Mm -hmm. And you see that movement or gymnastic person spinning through the air. Mm -hmm. And though you see the image there, you see the movement within the sculpture itself mm -hmm. that's animating this thing. And then with the shadow and everything, it just creates an amazing thing. So I come up with a template for estimating how much that was. So I took into account, you know, I designed a lot of the sculptures on the computer using Illustrator. 
and I and I already have my image picked out, and I sort of do it in layers and layers, and then I figure out the movement of it all. And so when I make this template, I divide up this whole thing and everything that I've done. I'll say the design segment took, or say research. I spent so much time for research and development. And in that time, I did come up with what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it. Research, say maybe about the person, his whole life history, his biography, whatever the research was. Then I come up with design in the sculpture time on computer and so on, so on, so on. So these are just categories. I haven't decided how much they time they take. Then I go through, I said, well, now I do the, the image. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How much would the image do? The portrait itself, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is a standalone piece of art. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. How long would that? That's a category. Then the category of building the sculpture. Mm -hmm. Then the category of combining the two together. And then the category of finishing it the final touches and everything. Then I went back and took a total set of time, and I said, well, gee, I, I spent three months on this piece. Mm -hmm. And in three months, and I knew that I worked like 12 hours a day. And I take that as an average and say, if I work 12 hours a day, that's how many hours this piece mm -hmm. has in it. Mm -hmm. Then I divided those things up into that amount of time that it probably took for those particular things. And then I would apply that template. Now, if someone come to me and say, well, how much would you charge for this piece? Then I would just look at that template and say, if you want something sort of like this, it has this amount of hour. Now, what I'm doing is a little different than what I think most people would do. But I'm sort of reluctant to share it because... I don't know that it's it's something that we should do. But for me, knowing the fact that average graphic artist makes probably around $55,000 a year. Yep. Or so, at least the last statistics I looked at. And, uh, and, and I know that as an art director in the past, if I were still doing the same job that I did years ago. Mm-hmm that uh, I'd probably be making about a, at least $120,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So I know that that's unrealistic today. So like say I just backtrack and say, gee, I just want to kind of get compensated for a little of my time. I would just say, I look at every piece and all those hours that I added up, mm -hmm. and I would say, gee, I paid myself $25 an hour. If I paid myself $35 an hour, if I paid myself $45,000, $45, and not the 60 that I should be making, then I would come up with the prices yep. on all of those things. And, and that prices only would be based on a deciding factor so that I could re come up with a reserve price. Yes. And the reserve price would be what I cannot sell it for. Everything else is negotiable. That's right. That's right. No, I'm so grateful to hear this because I've I've thought the same thing for a long time, you know, in terms of trying to 
because uh, I've talked to so many artists who struggle with pricing their work and, you know, you try to give them some, some very sort of practical constructs to break this uh, down in a manageable way. Cause it feels like a mystery, you know, to so many artists, but you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be that difficult. You know, you, if you can just get a sense of, of what you feel like your time is worth alone. Sure. Well, <laughs> you know what makes it difficult? Well, what you just said, what your time is worth. What makes it difficult is that a lot of artists do art, but they've never done art professionally and been paid for it. Yes. Yes. See, so uh, in my case. You have that experience. I have that experience. I've yes. worked as an illustrator. Yes. I've worked as a graphic designer. Yes, yes. I've done all those things. I know what they yes. pay for those yes. things. Right. And 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 if I'm doing that, I, I should at least be making. I've said, and I'm so grateful to hear you say this because I've said it myself for a while. It's like, listen, I think a lot of lot of fine artists, a lot of you know contemporary artists who are doing visual art, could learn a lot from the commercial art world if they if they looked and studied how graphic designers, well, art directors, good. how these professional commercial artists bill and and manage their time and think about how they charge. And I think that I think visual artists, fine artists, can learn a lot from the commercial art. Oh trade. yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I just totally agree with that. Just totally. Yeah, I mean, I've I've even gone so far as to say to folks, well, you know, what do you what, what's your dream salary? Oh well, you know, if I could. If I could make $100,000 a year, it'd be great. Okay. Well, that's your goal. Now, let's break down how many hours a week you work, and let's figure out what your hourly rate is going to be, right. right? And then to your point about the reserve price, it's like whatever you think, if you're going to – if you think you've got, you know, X hours and what have you in this painting and the base price is 2000 just make up numbers, but 2000 then then I say, you know what? Double that. To four thousand, and that becomes your sales price because then two thousand is per, pure profit. Well, that's negotiable. That. Well, this has been something that may that may change in the future. I hope with the new crypto art and NFTs, eventually stuff will change. But what's happening right now is basically the artist. You got to think of yourself as the wholesaler. Yeah, because if you take your stuff to a gallery, they automatically going to double the price. That's right. That's right. So your price has got to be that price. That's right. That's right. So in order to compete, you you put up a website, and you're reluctant to put up to say, "Well, shit, all I want is two thousand dollars," and they're going to sell it for four thousand dollars. Yeah. So I got to advertise my piece for four thousand dollars. Right. In order for them to be mm -hmm. to take my stuff and put it in the gallery. Yep. 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 <laughs> and yep. so it becomes a complex thing. But what happens if you remove that middleman? and sell your own art, then you can be more true to what you think your art is worth to you. Then keep in mind, you know, you've heard the expression that that art is uh, what someone's willing to pay for. Right. I don't think that's necessarily true because I think, like, like again, I'm saying, if I'm a portrait artist and you're paying me $6 an hour, $60, an hour to do a portrait, right. and a portrait's taking me a hundred hours. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. So, when a lot of times people ask me, they'll look at a piece and they'll say, "Well, how long did that take?" And I'll say, "Oh, that took about a hundred hours." And they'll ask me what the price is. I says, "Oh, I don't know. What do you think it should be?" I say, "How much do you make?" He says, "Well, I make twenty-five, thirty dollars. Pay me that." <laughs> Yeah, exactly. 
See, it's not a hobby, you know? No, no. Well, you know, and there are other analogs to, to, to sort of look at. I mean, you know, the idea that, you know, you don't pay a doctor for their time in the in the room with you because the doctor in the room with you is like five minutes, right? And, and, but yet you get a bill for $500. Oh, that's, but that's... That's his time. Yeah, that well, and it, but it's and the, his experience, it's a, and his, his education, and his experience, and so you're paying for thirty years or That's twenty right. years of expertise, of study, of you know mastery, yeah, and right. and and this is what so artists. So every bring. time you ask them a question. That's worth the dollars. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. It is the same with artists. It's just that uh, the visual arts, we we just take it. We just don't take it seriously. I, I mean, uh, uh, especially the fine art. Commercially, we do. We we love package design. Yeah, we love all those things that make us buy things. That's where the art industry flourishes because it has a value. Now, if you do all those things and you, so if I were an artist out there today and say I didn't work in the art world, I would probably look at the statistics of what people are paid that does something similar to what I do. You can't just put a time on it because a person can take a hundred hours to do nothing that would be measured, measurable to anyone paying for. Well, and those hundred hours yeah. might've been spent thinking about, yes. you know, uh, that is another thing. Now me and my art, rather than being so spontaneous, because I consider, even though I'm a realist, super realist, uh, abstracts are probably the hardest thing to, for me to do because I might not have a clear picture of where I'm going, only a, a fringe of an idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love to know exactly where I'm going. And so most of the pieces I do, I know exactly where they're going and what they're going to be. So the thought process now is when I sit and think, I make seldom make mistakes. The reason why I don't make mistakes is because I'm painting it over and over in my mind before I put that stroke there. That's the thinking part. And you spend a lot of time thinking. A person will say, what, you sitting there, you're just thinking. No, I'm painting. Yeah, it's um, there, there, there are, there's a lot of issues related to this that's so fascinating. I mean, you talked a little bit about what the market will bear. I mean, you know, because it's like it doesn't make sense, right, to charge $100,000 for something. If the market's only going to pay fifty thousand, right? Exactly. Lexus is going to sit there and you know collect. nobody's going to right exactly right. So then, so then that raises the issue, right? Of like, well, okay, you know, what's more important to you? You know, making sure that you got that fifty thousand and that that artwork found a home where people are going to love it, or you're gonna you're just going to hang on to that hope that somebody's going to show up with a hundred thousand dollars. You know, I read something interesting, and this again, this is about NFTs. And the new realm of thinking for like our younger generation. And it, it caused me to just think about something a little differently, which relates to what you were just saying. We'd like to do these great pieces and cost a lot of money and to go into some great home in Malibu to where maybe only a few people are going to see. Where the new generations will buy these NFTs as art because they want to put them on Instagram. They want to share them with their friends rather than they can't come into their home. And so that brings a whole nother realm to this whole art thing that we've, that we've 
been become accustomed to. Maybe it isn't so much about the art that you have on your wall. Matter of fact, I've people would say I do a portrait of uh, uh, somebody famous, and they'll say, "Well, gee, they seen that." I said, "Why would they want that? They have a thousand pictures of themselves." And Oprah said that. Don't, don't send me no more portraits of me. I just give them. If they even get to her, they go into her French. Yes. You know? Yes. 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 <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, Albert, I mean, part of what I enjoy about what we're talking about is that you have so much experience and wisdom to partake or to to share to the young artists coming up, because from a practical business perspective, there's so many you know lessons that you could teach. But then also the younger generation, to your point about NFTs, like they're living in a digital world that us analog folks are just trying to learn. They can teach us. Exactly. Well, I'm learning every day. You know, I went back to school to learn graphic design, not because I wanted to do graphic design, but I just saw a use of that as a tool for me doing what I did. Mm -hmm. And as an extension, it's just another tool. And so in the process, I just found another world. Yeah. And then since then, this was 2000, since then, it's just booming. One thing that I don't know much about the NFTs, but or the cryptocurrency, but it seems that if you were to think about the future, it's probably the most practical way to do any business because then it becomes global business. I mean, if you had a currency that you could trade and sell in London, Germany, all at the same time, back and forth, rather than the restrictions and almost, in fact, even bartering, whether in being controlled by a particular environment. Like just, I mean, we're in the United States and U.S. currency has a certain value, but it would still have that value compared to something else, like the mark or the yen. Well, one of the things that I find fascinating about NFTs is the notion of the smart contract and that artists can yes, ma make 10%. commissions or royalties on, on secondary. Resales. So yeah, that's yes, right. Exactly. Exactly. Do you know that artists can't even write off the value of their work that they give away? They almost got to sell it. I didn't know that. Get a I value. didn't realize that you could not yeah. deduct no, art that you donate. No, it has no value until somebody else buys it. And, you know, in my, my whole prompt thing about the art I'm doing today, I'm doing these series of shadow art pieces. I mean, I will go into other stuff because I love painting landscapes. I love painting wildlife. I love all these things. And I would like, and I have expressions that I would like to bring about those things that are sort of new and fresh to those markets as well. But to leave something behind, and I'm trying to do stuff that is museum, quality. I think of the work that I'm doing now as being in a museum, not on somebody's wall in, yes. in Miami. Yes, yes. And I'm hoping that I can leave something behind because I think it'll be a contributing factor and, and maybe motivate somebody else to further art. Uh, the medium of shadow art, which is what I 
like to call it, is a whole new medium. I'm not the first to do it, but but maybe to regenerate it. And take it to the level you've taken it. Yes. And then somebody can follow and take it somewhere else. That's right. Because it can go for, for forever. Every time I do one piece, I think of another way I can use it. Think about all the subliminal stuff, you know, they talk about that you could do behind stuff. Mm. I mean, not that I would do it, but even sinister stuff. But 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 the subliminal stuff that you're doing in the so-called portrait piece that you're doing in your studio right now that I saw, you've got words inside words, if that makes yeah. sense. Like it it is it is it's remarkable that that level of complexity. Well, not only that, my whole idea is, you know, which I'm doing in one of the pieces, I'll do it in a print form, is use words instead of strokes to produce a portrait. You know what I'm trying to say? I saw an artist do something similar to that. And I said, God, if I just use words, and I and I thought about Obama loved Lincoln, you know, so mm-hmm. I says, gee, for his library, I'd like to do Abraham Lincoln, but maybe how could I do Abraham Lincoln and make him unique? I said, you know, the one unique thing I think I do with Abraham Lincoln that I haven't seen done is this guy with his sense of humor mm-hmm. and all his quotes. So what if I did all those quotes and I use the words tiny to large to do an impression of his portrait. Yes. That would be like Chuck Close. Right. From a distance, they would be, appear realistic. Right, right. But as you got closer, you'd be able to read the word, all the this words stuff. emerge. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so, of course, I've never done it yet. Although I have another since then. I've come up with another idea for Obama. <laughs> of portrait. course you have. <laughs> you know, years ago, I wanted to. My whole idea when I went into art in the first place was I, I'd go to the museum and I'd see all the Rembrandts and, and I'd see Raphael and all these guys, the great masters. And, and, and I'd say, gee, that, that's amazing that they did all of that with paint mm. and colors and stuff. And most people put two colors together, they turned to mud. And yet these guys did all these things. And then they're so large. Mm. Larger than life, even. And I'd go back and I'd say, but I don't see no black people. Mm. And then when I go see black people, I see the woodcuts and stuff that they did for when they had them in the slavery market. That's the only representative. And I says, yet black people were here all the time. And I look at early photography and, and publishings in America, and I don't see my brothers. I don't, I would like to know what they look like, what clothes they wore. Yes. Whether they used the same silverware, yeah. whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know. Right. And so my idea about illustration was just, gee, if I could be like Andrew Wyatt and these guys, and I could just paint those stories. Because with my reading disability, I had dyslexia, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was very difficult for me reading, but I could look at those pictures 
and then would make me understand the words underneath them. And I, I gradually overcame that disability of reading, but I saw pictures. And I say, now, if I could just paint those pictures, because you know, Andrew Wyatt and these people, they would do like you'd see the pictures and you read the book of Treasure Island or something. And you see the picture, not only the picture isn't copying what the writer wrote, he's copying the words between what he wrote. So you see an extension of that, and it'd be like a fly on the wall. I said, now, God, if I could be a fly on the wall, of all points through history, knowing that certain things happen, even though there's no history to prove it. It's almost like, this is a crude expression, God is saying, you see a movie all the time, and it's not realistic in the sense. It just covers up stuff. But you can be sure that a guy peed and shitted on himself in a foxhole. You right. know, oh, absolutely. You don't have to have no name, no, right. no proof, right, right. no anything. No, no, right. You know it's, life happens. <laughs> you know it happens. Yeah. So that I know that there was a black mountain man. Yep. Somewhere. Yep. <laughs> you know. Yep. That stepped on some ground that nobody else stepped on. Yep. You know, not to mention that, you know, one other thing about inventions, you know, people talk about always trying to give people credit for it mm -hmm. being invented mm -hmm. and who did what. And, and not to harp on a black and white issue, but can you imagine all the things, and not just black, I mean, Jews were slaves for years. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, people of color, period, and indigenous people, I mean, yeah. Right, yeah. and it just, but think about all the, all the creative things and the inventions that were done that yeah. somebody else took credit for. Right. And to use that as an example, from my personal experience, you know, I worked for an art company called Art Master Studio, and a large portion of our uh, workers were either Hispanic or Asian, a lot of Koreans. And process of uh, uh, reproducing this art, and sometimes I had as many as 100 copy artists. They're skilled artists. A lot of them, we trained them from scratch to do this work. And so they would work from a master piece of art, and they would duplicate it as close as they could by hand. And we'd give them instructions how to do it, what kind of brush stroke to use, what brush to use, what color. We mixed, pre-mixed all these colors and everything for them to use, and yet I noticed one day my Korean artists had invented tools to speed up their work because they're piecework artists, yeah. and they get paid by how many they do. Right, right. And Inno so innovating I, in real that's time. That's right. And so people, can you imagine a guy picking cotton saying, gee, I got to figure out a way to not cut my hand, how to how to do this, how to do that, right. do that, that. Right. And right. you never know what's going on. Then when you're so amazed, when you hear a Hispanic person developed a purse ballpoint pen. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Right, yes. We're so amazed that that happened. Yeah. Well, you got to know that that happened all through the well, and history. This, and this is, yes, right. And, you know, and just, you know, specific examples too, right? I mean, you think about, as I understand it, the, the Spanish destroying 
the libraries of the Incas. I mean, Incas had, as I understand it, a deep understanding of astronomy and the movements of the planets and mathematics. I mean, you look at what they built in terms of architecture and stonework. And I mean, and yet the, I believe it was the conquistadors came through and just destroyed all of this knowledge. Of course, yes. Where would we be, right? If we had had a history that aggregated knowledge and pushed it forward rather than destroy it. you know, the lost library or Atlantis. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, you know, man, in order to control his power base. Yes. Alleviates things. That's right. That's about power. That's exactly right. And if you feel threatened, right, you 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 do what you do, you know. Yes, it's true. It's true. Albert Willis, I am so grateful for our time together today. And by the way, I haven't referred to you as Cleophis. Like what? What? Like what? So That's, what are we doing with Cleophis? Cleophis is me. Okay, right. Oh, however, though, I don't have a site up now. You know, I had a site up for yeah, a long okay. time okay. that I wasn't paying for. Okay. And whoever was hosting it decided that it was not necessary. Oh, they're like, oh, he's not paying for it. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. take that down. <laughs> but the site it was called Al Art Design mm-hmm. Unlimited. And uh, it, it just was too, too much. Mm-hmm, right. And I think today's concept, when I go on, when I put up my new sites, I'll attribute them to different things. I'll have one just for portfolio. Sure. Meaning things that I've sold or works that I've done in the past. Then I'll put up one site for a lot of the stuff that I did for Artmaster, the Artmaster collection. Yep. Another whole site. And for this high-end stuff, another site altogether, the shadow art, because it ends up being a conflicting thing for people. And I've noticed in my websites, I haven't generated almost no sales. I think people just get there and, oh, it's just too much. I'll come back later. Yeah. And they make no decision at all. Right, right. And then, you know, the art is always like, what's in your mind right now? And then you just put it aside and then never get, never get back to it. Yes. Because yes. it's spontaneous. Yeah, right, right. If you don't spend the money right then, the customer right then, they're probably not going to spend any money because they find another use for that. Th- right, right. For those right. dollars. Distracted. Yeah. But Cleophis yeah. is my name. Right. Uh, but I can't ignore the name Al Willis when I was producing records. So in a lot of cases, I'll use the name Albert Cleophis Willis. Oh, right. Just emphasizing the Cleophis. Yes. Cleophis was a thing I came up with when I went back to school at 50. Okay. I think I was 50. I might have been 51 or 52. When I went back to school, Mm -hmm. uh, which was an experience all by itself, being in kids with, being in (laughs) class with kids that were I bet. 18 I bet. years old. <laughs> the, the, the hoppers, you're in the... <laughs> One guy would tell me, I'm sitting here trying to learn the computer thing, which was, whoa, which is hard for old people. Right, right. Different way, yeah, different Before different Pac-Man yeah. people, you know. Yeah. And and he's doing this stuff, and he knows how all the stuff he's doing, and he's telling the teacher, he says, I don't like sitting by that guy. See, he just come up with that shit like that. And I'm saying, well, I feel the same way about you. And I can't do that computer stuff. Let's help each other. Come on. That's right. 
Oh, oh man, oh man. Well, I'll tell you what, Albert, I am so grateful that you are are a part of our 2021 class of grant winners. I am so grateful to call you my friend. And I hope you'll come back to the podcast soon. Oh, yeah. You know what? I'll probably end up being part of your staff somewhere down the line. I, I look forward to it. I think I got a lot to contribute. But first, I got to finish up these pieces here and survive. <laughs> <laughs> Every day, one day at a time, right? One day at a time. You know the old saying, right? You eat an elephant one bite at a time. That's right. And uh, that's what you're doing here. That's what you're doing. That's right. Well, thank you for your time, sir. It's always oh, a pleasure you. seeing you. I'm glad to see you come by and see some art because, you know, before uh, me too. Yes. your time is so limited and you're such a busy guy, I said, God, I want to show this guy all this stuff I'm doing. And he, he probably knows people that can help me do this stuff. And and he ain't got time to sit down and look at it. Well, I tell you what, it, it, it you know people say to me all the time, say, "Well, you're so busy because of the company." I say, "No, I'm so busy because I got two kids under nine. That's why I'm busy." Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that that is true. That is. True. You know, I love my kids, but my God, am I tired? <laughs> yeah, you know that's true. I did all that earlier, but I sometimes wonder, you know, this whole thing about the starving artist. You know, I often wonder if I had done it earlier. Yeah. Because uh, I've done a lot of firsts, but I've done them for other people. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe they would have happened and maybe they wouldn't have never happened. You know, who, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? You know, I mean, I, I enjoyed working for Art Master because it's like I had a palette. Every day I would come into work and my total job was make something new, make something different, make something fit. Mm-hmm. A mold, yeah, you know, because art as a decoration, which most people still use it as, mm-hmm. regardless mm-hmm. of what they tell you, right, right, only right. follows what's already in their house. Yeah, the wallpaper's already there, the paint's already on the wall, the carpet's already there, the upholstery's already done. Now you got to make something that doesn't make all the other look irrelevant. That's right. There's a color palette there. You better make something that fits. That's right. And you know the notorious avocado gold age, don't you? Oh, yeah. You, yes, yes, yes. 73? (laughs) Wow. You couldn't get rid of it. They made refrigerators, avocado, everything, dishes, everything. (laughs) So if you didn't make a painting that would go with avocado, you were in trouble. (laughs) They sold like hotcakes at uh, at Sears and JCPenney's, right? That's right. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld.